0: Hello and welcome to Renegade Paradise, the official podcast of the Charleston, South Carolina chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. We're an intersectional activist organization working to build a society and economy run by the working class, a society that democratically meets the needs of the many rather than creating profits for the few. Renegade Paradise is a news, commentary, and educational platform based on socialist analysis from activists on the ground here in the Lowcountry. By sharing a socialist perspective, and by lifting up the voices of our allies and comrades, we hope to create a space for folks in this part of the country looking to deepen their understanding of leftist politics, but who might not know exactly where to start. Members of the Charleston Democratic Socialists of America come from a broad, diverse set of backgrounds and tendencies within the spectrum of the working class left. What unites us is one common goal, to build a different world, a better world. I'm C.J. Bones, and... Um, Tonight, we're going to be continuing our discussion on the Charleston Rebellion. Specifically, we're going to talk about some potential next steps, uh, the um, importance of building a unified, multiracial working class, and understanding how predatory capitalists and the police work to exploit weaknesses in that unified front. So it's been about a month since the night of May 31st, when the uprising began, and Many folks on the left here in the Lowcountry have been thinking about how to continue to drive the movement forward. Uh, Recently, as a result of consistent pressure from activists here in Charleston, the city finally removed the statue of John C. Calhoun from Marion Square, which had been up for over 120 years. But we're not stopping there. That's just the start. Our movement will not stop until working people have control over our own communities, our own workplaces, and our own destinies. Part of winning those gains will inevitably come from organized black workers forming a strong union culture here in South Carolina, where it's desperately needed. Uh, So to get that discussion going, we're going to be talking with Charleston DSA member Ito. Ito is a former co-facilitator of the Charleston chapter who's interested in building a strong foundation of labor organizing uh, and linking those efforts with like-minded low-country organizations. Our discussion is going to cover a lot of different topics, everything from how police unions exist to protect cops to the recent work stoppage by longshoremen and warehouse worker unions across the country. We'll also spend some time talking about how issues of racial and economic justice are intertwined and uh, how the left must be able to make those connections and advocate for both of them at the same time. So before we get into that, I'd like to emphasize that Charleston DSA stands in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement as they call for, among other things, the abolition of police, measures to ensure full reparations and economic justice for all black people, and the building of black power in public, personal, and political spaces. These demands are critical for black working class folks to participate as truly equal members of society. The demands are centered in policies based on material needs that have long been neglected by a white supremacist capitalist society which requires a permanent class of exploited human beings to exist. It's how the system was built from the ground up. It's not broken. It's functioning exactly as planned. It is long past time to flip the script here and continue to agitate for real material change. It is long past time to put an end to police departments that function as figurative and literal weapons against black workers who deserve to fully reap the rewards of their labor. What better place than here? What better time than now? I'm C.J. Bones. This is Renegade Paradise. And we're live. All right. Uh, You know, thanks again for joining me tonight. I really appreciate it. How, How are you and yours holding up?
1: Uh, we're doing as well as we, well as can be expected What with curfews and being worried about being shot by the cops at any given point in time. So, yeah. okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a lot to be worried about. And, um, you know, I, I think it's important to realize that everybody's method of coping is kind of different. Um, so as long as you're taking care of yourself, taking care of your loved ones, it's all going to look different. But, um, please take some time to, you know, drink water, get plenty of rest, eat, and, uh, yeah, you know, is just that a thing people do.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> I keep forgetting to eat lunch lately. So,
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Oh boy. Um, yeah, bud. So talk a little bit about, um, kind of your role in the chapter. Um, well, At one point,
1: I was uh, one of the co-chairs of the chapter. I stepped back for a little while because I needed to handle some personal issues. Um, Right now, I've just been loosely stepping back in on the heels of all the protests that have been going on, talking to people about uh, Black Lives Matter and those protests and what kind of organizing that we can do to support the wider protests as well as advance the cause here in Charleston.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and, and we're happy to have you back. Um you know it's it I, I, I think uh I, I I think I could safely speak for everybody um that uh you know your your voice was missed and we are better with you here. Um Thank you. So let's dive right into the questions and talk a little bit about some of the parallels we're seeing uh here in 2020 with the MUSC strike of 1969 and for those of y'all who might remember uh we did cover that in a previous episode and we also uh, a couple of years ago we screened the film I am somebody uh it's a documentary about an hour-long documentary about uh the uh, MUSC strike here in Charleston um very good documentary, highly recommended. Um, it's if it's not, I don't remember if it's still on YouTube, but it's around uh and streaming on uh many services. So if you got a couple bucks, um, it's worth it. Um, but yeah, let's 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 kind of talk about some of those parallels.
1: Yeah, so there's a lot of
0: parallels, especially in demographics,
1: there, um, both. Uh-huh. Both of the issues centered race and class, and it was black women that were at the forefront of organizing the strike at WSC, as well as at the forefront of organizing Black Lives Matter as it stands. Right. Um, There were some definitely disturbing parallels with the police attempting to suppress the protests and strikes, the National Guard getting called out, curfews being imposed citywide, um, some minor level of police brutality... Uh, that was involved in the 69 strike at least from what i've read there's probably more than was actually reported as these things tend to go but from what i was able to see from reading it was not as bad as one might have expected from a strike in charleston south carolina of all places yeah um so yeah there was a there was a great deal of Talk around the intersection of race, class, and gender in the um, MUSC strike, and it was a push for you know social equality, social equality, better working conditions, better pay. Since the workers that were on strike were actually being paid below the federal minimum wage, so it was right. a whole thing in the sixty nine strike.
0: Yeah, and um, we're we're still seeing that sort of exploitation today. You know, we're talking about parallels. Um, yeah, you know. Uh, South Carolina definitely has not um, kept up with the, you know, with the cost of living. Um, we're still seeing uh, wage theft. that has been talked about a lot amongst other activists, how wage theft is the single biggest uh, cause of theft in the United States compared to like, you know, breaking and entering, uh, armed robbery, etc. But nobody ever talks about it because that's just sort of tolerated. Um I know it's a big deal here in Charleston especially amongst you know the food and beverage crowd um downtown when you combine these you know these cla- these these issues of class um like you were saying you know the issue of race comes up pretty frequently because you know of the racial demographics of of these different industries and and these different uh you know uh, wage groups essentially Um, So you really can't have a discussion about one without discussing the other. And I think some folks on the left kind of forget that it's all about class, class first, you know, class reductionist sort of mindset.
1: Yeah, you, you really can't talk about race without talking about class. In fact, if you try to do so, you have a tendency to exacerbate the problems of both. They have. They travel in the same cart. They have to be talked about together. And while it's right. absolutely true that you know white supremacy and racist ideology has taken on its own special twisted life of its own, it was from its in about class in the first place, and it's all wrapped around class. Like you have to bring that into the conversation, or you're just missing out
0: huge parts of the equation, right? Yeah. We got to learn how to walk and chew gum at the same time, you know? (laughs) So I've heard. (laughs) Um, So a a lot of what we're going to be talking about is, uh, you know, union organizing. A lot of what we're going to be talking about tonight is labor. Um, Let's talk about police unions a little bit and and how they're different. So leftists come down pretty hard on... uh, uh, police unions uh, while pushing, you know, on the other hand, pretty strong for like a working, like a worker's culture and unionizing your place of business, unionizing um, many industries. I've had multiple talks with folks in my family about, you know, the difference between the two. Um, but um what, what are your views on, and, and on how it's important to, to make this line in the sand, and how police unions actually contribute to the toxic environment uh, of a lot of police departments across the country?
1: So yeah, let's, let's back up and start with um, you know, leftist interaction with unions in general and police unions. So what I realized in thinking about this is that, The equivalence between labor unions and police unions only makes sense if you empty unions of their content and you just take it as form. So labor unions and police unions engage in collective bargaining. Both of them are about workers in some capacity being able to negotiate the terms of their employment. But when you're looking at labor unions, their core, their base... Um, what they were about was being a vehicle for the liberation of the oppressed. Right. With a specific lens on the working class. Police, by their very function, are, uh, are an apparatus for oppression. So right. you can't compare the two. The only way that that makes sense, like I said, is when you empty out that content and you just look at the form. And I think that might have a lot to do with... Um, the legacy of the Cold War, that unions began to walk back more and more and more from that uh, liberatory content, that focus on struggle, and just right. became an apparatus for negotiation. And so that's right. the only way that you can see that equivalence happening. And worse, there, the AFL-CIO is... Um, well-known for having some internal conflicts about their association with police unions. And I think part of the reason that that happens is that emptying of content that I was talking about, that they're worried that, you know, when neoliberals are pointing at police unions and say... Look, the, the reason that police unions are a problem is their collective bargaining process and the kind of contracts that they negotiate, that that'll allow a broad brush to be planted across all unions. But if, again, if you go back to that central focus on what the content of a union is, not just its form, it becomes obvious that that doesn't
0: work together as a comparison. Right. Liberation versus uh, you know repressive state apparatuses.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because you had talked about um, how a lot of labor unions really started walking back their the the radical core of their activity and their organizing, and this was all kind of about the same time. Where in the eighties, where the CPUSA uh, got infiltrated with um, you know folks from the FBI, and you know you had the Soviet Union gradually easing their uh, criticisms of the West. Um, and, and maybe this is a, a broader question and I'm going off script a little bit, but, um, <laughs> can you, uh, can you speak a little bit about some of those links to, uh, a, a decrease of, of revolutionary rhetoric and revolutionary activity in the late seventies and eighties? I mean, it's, <sighs> that's a really large topic and
1: it's kind of hard to narrow it down to talk about. Um, So there was of course the, I've honestly forgotten which premiere of the Soviet union that we're talking about that began the process of that. opening (laughs) Um, And walking back from a lot of the radical core that drove communism in the first place. I mean, really the thing to look at is kind of keep the focus on America itself. There was you know, a with McCarthyism and everything and the Red Scare, there was this large push towards pushing anything that had to do with uh, labor liberation and class politics as far out of the mainstream as possible. If you said the word class, you were obviously a communist, and that was right. just anathema in that political culture. So there's... It's a really big topic and hard to get our heads around yeah. in uh, a single thing that's not about specifically the legacy of the yeah. Cold
0: War. Well, maybe we'll um, maybe we'll need to do an episode on that and uh, and have you back if that's cool. I mean, yeah, that's something to consider. Yeah. Um, of uh, uh, several episodes ago, we talked about, uh, the book revolution in the air, uh, by max Elbaum, and it did a really good job of kind of laying out the, the timeline of the American left, uh, as a, as a, as a series of mass movements, um, and kind of their, the rise and, and, and fall. Uh, so that's an episode I think would be really cool if we, uh, could maybe link to this in, in the near future, but, uh, uh, yeah, we'll, um. We'll we'll table that for now, I think. All right. <laughs> Let's talk about um, specifically how these police unions um, contribute to like the toxic, unaccountable culture of police departments, like maybe with some specific examples.
1: I mean, I don't have a lot of specific examples off the top of my head, but I can tell you about the general pattern that what happens is you have the collective bargaining that happens with um, the local government that includes contracts that specify what kind of immunities that a police officer can, can be given that specify whether or not records are sealed with respect to public investigation of it. There's an entire an entire machine surrounding protecting the police from the repercussion of their own actions, and that is inherent in the police unions. I mean, like we said, the police have an essential function of being part of the oppressive state apparatus, and then police unions exist to support that outside of the basic functions of the police themselves. So it all kind of ties in together to make this Awful situation in which even those within the government who might be inclined to say, look, this is getting completely out of control. We have to do something about this. The nature of the contracts that have been signed already make it so there's not a whole lot you can do. And we're not even getting into the special relationship that exists between district attorneys and the various police unions that further suppress the ability to actually pursue justice in case of um, police misconduct
0: or brutality as the case may be. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I remember um, a friend of mine posted something on their Instagram account, uh, kind of breaking down in a very easy to read, very brief way, basically a line, uh, a bar graph, uh, kind of breaking down the Charleston, South Carolina, 2020 budget, business and neighborhood services, a pretty broad category, I'll admit, but, um, you know, uh, ended up, you know, yeah, $541,000. Um, that breaks down to $3.46 per person uh, for 2020. For uh, housing, um, their 2020 budget was $929,000. Um, that breaks down to around $6 per person. Um, and as, as you're well aware, <laughs> housing is one of the biggest crises for the working class here in, in Charleston. I mean, there's a lot of crises. I mean, climate change, uh, police brutality, but housing, definitely. Um, the police department breaks down to $53,445,000. Uh, and that that's around $341 per person for the year 2020. So like police funding in Charleston in the year 2020, several orders of magnitude larger than services and social safety net programs and like real practical things like material things that will help people by several orders of magnitude. Um, and to your point, I do kind of wonder like how that, how that culture, how that sort of good old boy buddy buddy system kind of works to get, uh, You know, cops, basically all the money in the world, um, and then there is nothing left for anything that will actually put material resources in people's hands.
1: I mean, in that particular case, it's worth noting, you know, the interest of those who control the machines of government. It's not the working class that generally has control over the machines of government. It's typically the ruling class. And among those programs that are listed, the things that the ruling class cares most about is the police themselves. This is to say nothing about the long, centuries-long program of propaganda that has been um, forced into the American electorate, especially the white American electorate, to emphasize – how to put it? To racialize the yeah. conceptions of crime, yeah, and therefore justify ever inflate or ever more inflated police budgets, yeah, because like
0: it's it's it's
1: very much a class
0: interest issue to look at it. Yeah, definitely. Um, that goes right back to our first talking point. You you can't um, separate these issues of of race and class. Um, some folks may want to, but it just doesn't work like that. And if we do, we weaken kind of both arguments. You know. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's talk about a little bit about how police departments have used and are using today the white supremacist tendencies of capitalism, um, to, to disrupt a united working class. Because as we were, as you were talking about earlier, that's the real threat. It's like, if, if all of us all at once withhold our labor, if all of us decide to like get out in the street. In mass and do something, um, I think a united working class across racial lines is the single biggest threat to their existence. Hence, the massive funding for police departments around the country.
1: So, yeah, the police definitely use white supremacy in their own interest, but I think the the structure of that question is a little off because that focuses on. Um, the police as an apparatus. But the question there is, who is it that empowered the police in the first place? Who Uh. is it that created white supremacy in the first place? And in both cases, we're looking at the ruling class. The police are functionaries of the ruling class in order to implement certain policies and act as enforcers for the system that they wish to keep in existence. So yeah, we can definitely keep our eyes on the police and talk about racism within the police force. We can talk about the problems of white supremacy, but we need to keep looking back at who it is that benefits. Like, there's, a, I, I think that's a principle in investigation, uh, qui bono, who benefits? Okay. You got to keep your eyes on that. Who is it that actually benefits? The police certainly benefit from these things, but even more than that, the ruling class benefits from the existence of the police and the division among the working
0: class that's created. That's right. And, um, you know, that's how, you know, that's how buildings and, and, and private property and, and broken windows, you know, they get treated more seriously than, you know, the actual flesh and blood folks that are out demonstrating in in the streets right now, because those buildings more often than not are owned by members of the ruling class, Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, the police are there not to protect you and me. They're there to protect those buildings. They're there p- to protect those, those windows, basically. And I remember... It's expendable, capital is not. Exactly. Um, I think I remember somebody in the Discord channel posted a uh, line of about, um, you know, 10 to 15 riot cops fully decked out, just select, just basically forming a line in front of the Yeti store downtown on King Street, <laughs> And I'm like, "Wow, that is very Charleston right now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I did not see that picture that's that's incredible. It's and depressingly not surprising
0: it's it would be funny if the stakes weren't so high but it but it is still kind of funny in a way, I guess I don't know it's is, it is a farce, <laughs> kind of like you' just gotta laugh about it, otherwise you'll just cry about it." i mean i somehow
1: managed to do both an
0: <laughs> impressive feat. you don't you don't have to they don't have to be mutually exclusive you can do both <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah all all great points all well said um and yeah it is it is important for us to um what was the phrase you used qui bono qui bono uh ah, who benefits who benefits <laughs> like oh, almost every issue that you're
1: looking at in politics, if you can keep that central idea in mind, qui bono, keep digging until you find the ultimate and greatest beneficiary, you'll find who it is to point the finger at, and you'll find who it is that is actually responsible. A, a lot of this conversation surrounding policing seems to assume that the police are acting autonomously from the rest of the ruling class and governmental apparatus Right. Right. whereas they are in an integral part of it and if we just focused on the racist cops that leads us to turn around and look at you know various members of congress or various members of the city council and go to ask them hey can you rein in the cops in some way
0: i'm glad you said that yeah they
1: are the problem (laughs) they are the ones who created the issue in the first place
0: yeah you know, as simple as we may want it to be, this isn't like you know, um, this isn't rogue police officers and rogue police departments just going out of control and, and going buck wild. Like this is planned. This is the machine working as it's supposed to. And I think that sort of rhetoric might, in some ways, play into the whole idea of <clears throat> of the of the bad apple theory. Like it's just a handful of cops, like doing, I guess, everything around the. <laughs> country um which is kind of silly on its face but when but when you kind of examine it within the context of like how people talk about it in in the mainstream discourse yeah that's that's a that's a thing that is really sort of commonly accepted and i think it's our job uh as socialists to kind of challenge that and and to point out these connections definitely yeah um and, and let's kind of get into some of uh, the how and when and why's on how, to, how we point those uh, connections out. Um, so on Tuesday, June 9th, there was a work stoppage led by the International Longshoremen and Warehouse Union. Um, I remember that in the Discord, you were, um, were definitely pretty jazzed about that. So can yeah. you talk a little bit about that, wh- what that looks like on a local level and why some folks might consider it a warning shot?
1: Yeah, so for decades now, unions have been kind of silent on social issues. I mean, they're there in sporadic bursts, but as far as a concentrated force of pushing for justice, they haven't been really involved. They've been more cons- Under contracts with the corporations that they work with they might put out a statement on things but there's not usually a whole lot of action on that front right and you know this work stoppage was coast to coast we're talking about the entire longshore or international longshoremen's association um of the united states that you had people in ports in charleston um, people in ports in Virginia and California that all stopped work at the same time. Um, it, they only stopped work for a few minutes the same length of time that uh, George Floyd was being held down by the cops and choked to death. Um, but still, the fact that they were actually out stopping work for a social issue is something that hasn't been seen for quite a while and is drawing a direct connection between race and class right there in the institutions and we ha- we really haven't seen that in a long time and i can't possibly describe how excited i am to yeah. see that start to happen like that yeah. makes that gives us a lot more strength when we go to argue and when I, I i've said it was a warning shot before that it's kind of labor flexing its muscles right or The first time in a while with respect to politics outside of issues of labor contracts saying, hey, we remember deep down. We remember that we are an institution of justice. We are an institution of power for the oppressed. And the oppressed are coming out in droves right now to say, stop killing us. We're not going to stay silent on this anymore.
0: Like that's that's what you love to see. Yeah. (laughs) we love to see it. Um, yeah, we really haven't seen this sort of like public demonstration, um, on such a large scale in a long time. Um, a lot of labor power, um, you know, in, in the, at least when you and I have grown up has been like, you know, kind of hidden from the public almost like it's all gone on behind, uh, you know, it's all gone on in, in the boardroom and, and in the shops like, you know, folks in unions making demands basically from capital and a lot of, you know, since a lot of folks aren't part of a union here in South Carolina, I think it's sub 3%. um, A lot of us don't really know what that's like. Aren't really sure how one negotiates uh, on in, in such a capacity and, and really what the effectiveness of it is. Um, So these sort of public actions I think are, are, Kind of different and, and unprecedented, so it's really exciting to see what it means from this point forward. I'm, I'm not sure. Um. But I mean, I would <laughs> say it means whatever it is that we choose for it to mean I continue to pursue that line.
1: Yeah. I've been trying to push that all over social media and every place that I have access to to keep that from flying under the radar because it was sort of a sudden action on the part of the ILA. I think they had probably been talking about it for a couple of days. They put out... Um, uh, public letter on June 8th. The action happened on June 9th and they went back to work. So there wasn't a whole lot of buildup and time to get the information about that out there. And I think at least part of it is that you know they weren't interested in any sort of performative actions there. This was a true statement of solidarity and making wow. a big hullabaloo about look at us, look at what we're doing, would really come off as very performative. But it's important that they did that. Right. It's important to be aware of the fact that that was happening. So I've I've just been trying to blast it out there and get people's eyes on it. Like, look, labor unions are getting in this fight. Pay attention.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, we we definitely need to start paying attention. This is kind of a situation that most folks in the workforce really haven't seen uh, in a long time. Um, and there's a lot of like high stakes um right now like with both with just especially here in south carolina how anti-worker the economy is um the ever-present threat of of covid19 the fact that uh our our state government basically has just decided to be like eh, you know what we're bored and we like money so we're just going to reopen it and not listen to uh any medical professionals um so in one way, you might think that uh, now is not the time for such direct action. We've got to, you know, attack. We've got to get through this one thing first. But uh, now is really, I think, and you, uh, I think the quote you used for the, the situation that would make us hesitate to strike paradoxically demonstrates its power. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and, and kind of put that in context with, with uh, what we're facing today?
1: Yeah. So in particular, I was talking about... Um you know, what is going on with COVID-19 and the closing of America, the quarantine in order to, you know, try and keep people as safe as possible. The reopening that's happened was primarily for economic reasons, primarily to get the engines of consumption going again so that various corporations can start profiting again. And they're willing to throw away as many lives as is necessary in order to keep that going. The fact that they, you know, we're so concerned about how much people are working yeah. and producing things that gives them profit as sort of a demonstration of how badly they need us. If they weren't concerned about, you know, what it is they were doing, if this was just a so generous gift to the working class that you're allowed to work and survive, they could keep America closed for just however long they pleased. But right. that's not what happened. And while i fully understand the reasons why people would be hesitant to go on strike there are all an entire slew of reasons to be concerned this moment really demonstrates how precarious the position of the, the ruling class actually is and how much power that we have
0: right like it it was really interesting to see how united in solidarity that they were to push out the order like hey no we got to get this back up and running we we got to get people out spending money uh so we can buy you know another another house you know <laughs> it was it was pretty impressive to see honestly ha- like happening in real time um and uh you know as a result um it's almost you know definitely comes across as if if science stands in the way of of profit then Boy, will they bulldoze over science? And I think we've seen that in you know many times. Uh, Anything in, stands in the way of profit, they'll bulldoze over it. Let's be real. Yeah, it yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and one thing I've also thought about is um, how different industries, um, you know, have kind of responded to COVID nineteen a lot of folks don't have the capacity to work from home. A a lot of folks don't have the capacity to take, you know, uh, social distancing and, and, and self quarantining, uh, procedures uh, seriously because their their livelihoods depended on it and now since they've gone now since the state has gone full bore into just throwing people off employment and and forcing uh, the the state back open basically i think we i would not be surprised if we see yet another like racial dynamic play out because you know a lot of these uh you know, a, a lot of these professional office type fields where you can work from home on a laptop, very underrepresented uh, as far as uh, uh, as far as black folks. Um, so I, I, I do kind of wonder what that will look like in the weeks and months ahead, you know.
1: Yeah, that is definitely a thing to watch out for. Yeah. I, I don't have any real clue as to exactly what that's going to look like but it may become yet another flashpoint in this uh ongoing drama that 2020 is (laughs) you know black lives matter going after the police and black lives matter might be coming out again talking about the forced reopening of the state over the objections of health experts saying, look, the, the threat hasn't passed. Don't do this. Now nah, right. we're going to do it anyway because it's profitable.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, it's, it's absolutely worth keeping our eyes on. Um, may, and uh, maybe we'll talk about that in a future episode. I really hope we don't have to. Uh, yeah, I would, <laughs> I would love to do um, fewer episodes and, and talk about such heavy stuff. <laughs> <sighs> well, yeah. It's a mess. <laughs> it's a mess. <laughs> um, but the, the thing that, um, I'm grateful for is, is a lot of my comrades, you know, like yourself, um, I'm not an expert on most of the stuff I talk about on this show by any means. So being able to like have folks like you come on and and kind of lend your, uh, experiences and, and, and thoughts on that is super helpful. So thank you again for like contributing in, in the way that you do. That is my pleasure. I definitely want to get
1: these ideas in people's minds.
0: Yeah. Um, So let's talk a bit about how a strike is um, an expression of power as opposed to a request. Uh, There's been a lot of talk about, you know, uh, Bennett and I talked in the last episode when we were discussing uh, protest marshals, um, you know, following every law, every local ordinance, that's not really the purpose of these protests or strikes. Um, the purpose of these is to express power, uh, to to take back power. Um, so all that being said, the odds are against us here in South Carolina. Uh, how do we express and, and, more importantly, build on this power in places like South Carolina, uh, where union membership is so low? Well, the first thing to understand is that
1: unions as an institution, are a result of the social process of workers coming to understand their own power. It can also be, in its mature form, it's also a vehicle for the expression of that power. But it's when workers get together and realize, hey, look, this guy's screwing us over. We don't have to continue to take this. He's dependent upon us. It's when they come together in solidarity, like that a union forms. And I think there's been a lot of there's been an idea that you have to have a union first and that you know that kind of puts the cart before the horse but in either case once you have workers start to realize their own power that this civilization depends upon their labor they can withhold it they can say no we're not going to work anymore until these issues are addressed and usually like we were talking about earlier in our conversation Usually when this kind of power is actually employed, it's for you know better working conditions, better wages, et cetera, but it doesn't need to be limited to just that. We've so long thought of the strike and labor power as simply an economic tool as opposed to a social and political tool. It is the clearest expression of working class power across any racial demographic or whatever. If you can withhold your labor from an organization or a company,
0: you have the power in that situation. Right. Um, So would it be fair to say that instead of putting the cart before the horse, instead of like saying you have to have a union first in order to express this power and build on this power, would it be fair to say that as long as you were educating your fellow workers, as long as you were talking to your fellow workers, that's a start? That is definitely a start.
1: I mean, there's more that needs to happen than just talking to your fellow workers, as I'm sure is very obvious to you. But um, that is how you get that process started, Um, not only talking to them in the workplace, but beginning to spend the time together, talking about your workplace conditions outside of the workplace, talking about your grievances, coming to a shared set of understandings about your position in society. All of these are part of the process that eventually leads to unionization, collective bargaining, and possibly strikes in order to secure the right for that.
0: Right. Um, Earlier, you had talked about how um, a lot of the the demands and and uh, a lot of the demands put on capital are very like situational or very, you know, they're like uh, higher wages, better working hours, better working conditions. All of that is extremely you know worthy um, and important. But it seemed like you were also thinking about bigger, broader questions. Care to uh, care to kind of share any of that with us tonight?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, there's the issue of social justice outside of the workplace, going back to Black Lives Matter and the issue of police brutality. That is also a situation of oppression. And as I said earlier, unions are a vehicle for the liberation of the oppressed, that we don't need to limit our expression of that power to simply the issue we have with bosses in the workplace. There's other things that we can do. There's a concept called social movement unionism that exists, which is explicitly that tying together of labor with social movements in order to strengthen both. Now, that's been a weakened strain of thought with respect to unions in the United States for years now, for reasons we've already discussed. But I think we might be moving back into an era of that being seriously on the table. And being able to combine these forces gives us a lot more leverage when we go to ask for things. We don't need to just go to the ballot box and vote for candidates that were selected by the rich that are themselves probably from the rich and who after being in office for long enough will become part of the rich need to be as concerned with who it is that is in office when we have the power to demand what it is that we want. And indeed, if you actually look at the way the ruling class relates to, um, political officials. Oftentimes, you'll see major, major corporations or conglomerates of corporations will donate to both of the candidates in a presidential election. Why? They don't care who it is that's in office, ultimately. As long as they have access to the various people who are in charge of making decisions, as long as they can keep them focused on the policies that they're interested in, it ultimately doesn't matter who's in government. You have the power to you know, pull the levers of government into uh, in your direction we haven't focused on building that kind of power to pull it in our direction.
0: Right. Yeah. I I feel like that's something that a lot of folks kind of lose track of, Um, you know, especially on social media, it's like, you know, boycott this business or support this business, you know, chances are if they uh, you know, if, if they're large enough, they probably got their hands in both pots, you know, they, they've definitely contributed to like your favorite Progressive candidate and and you know the biggest conservative arch villain uh, because they they're smart they hedge their bets um, and they know that uh, under capitalism politics is a revolving door so they're they're not going to come down on on any ideology other than whatever makes them more money so they can uh, bring that additional profit to their stockholders because that's ultimately who they give a fuck about. And it's not you or me, it's not this politician or that politician, it's their stockholders. Um, Yeah. And, and that, that is kind of lost, I think. And, and I feel like, um, you know, organizations like DSA, you know, keeping Democrats and Republicans in our target sites, uh, you know, we can finally kind of break that that dichotomy of that two party system. Um, but, uh, another ep- that, that might be also a topic for another episode too, just the, <laughs> yeah. the problems with the two party system.
1: Uh, yeah. There, there's an entire series of legal structures, which keep that in force and make, Third parties, damn near impossible until it's changed. But who is it that's going to change it? The people who benefit from the existence of the two party system.
0: So off we go in circles. <laughs> yeah, it it in some ways I think it does show. Um, while while I personally don't like to completely um, discount the power of, of voting and, and electoral politics, uh, it's one tool in the tool uh, in the tool belt and. It's not the best one. Don't throw it away. It still does something. But you know, there are, there are other strategies that I think uh, folks on the left need to invest a lot more time in.
1: Yeah, I, I think I think that our basic stance towards electoralism needs to change. Yeah, It goes back to that issue of power. We keep thinking that if we vote this person into office, then they'll feel beholden to us and we'll vote the way that we want them to because we're the ones who voted them into office. That's yeah. not even remotely how it works. We need to keep our eyes on building the power necessary to be able to dictate <laughs> what it
0: is that we need to whoever it is that happens to be in office. Are you, are you suggesting establish a, a dictatorship proletariat? Uh, I don't know if I'd go quite that far. You know, there's some relationships there. Uh, you, you and I have, have have joked on that one before. I couldn't live <laughs> without one more, one more, uh, one more wise crack. So, what are the next steps, and do you have any final thoughts? I mean, in my opinion, the next
1: steps are to continue with the Black Lives Matter protest, keeping that issue central in the minds of the electorate, making sure that we go to every effort necessary to um, connect race and class and begin building up institutions or fortifying institutions that already exist that can allow us to express this power. We need to create a much stronger link between labor um, Sorry, we need to create a much stronger link between labor unions and social movements, including Black Black Lives Matter, as well as other movements.
0: Let's let's kind of build on that a little bit, because like I said, we have a little bit more time as long as we don't go off into too many tangents. Um, Do you feel like... the way Black Lives Matter is seen now, it does is there kind of a, a disconnect between union struggles? Is it seen more as like identity politics? Is is like is is there is there another more critical uh, look that folks on the left need to be taking at this point?
1: Yeah, I, I think there's been. There's honestly been a long trend from both sides of the political aisle to focus on what you might call identity politics. And I use that term with incredible hesitation because it comes loaded with a whole bunch of other things. Very loaded, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I guess you could call identity politics any kind of politics that manages to focus entirely on issues of identity as divorced from. Any kinds of questions of class, so you've got it from the right in the very nature of white supremacy. Hey, focus on that thug over there who's going to come and break into your house and get prepped for that. Focus on the welfare queen who's going to, you know, take advantage of the welfare system undeservedly in um, to the exclusion of you, and then on the left or. I say left. It's really more center when we're talking about Democrats. On the center, we've got you know people talking about issues with respect to women, people talking about gay rights issues, people talking about black issues, Hispanic issues, immigrants, etc., and talking about it as if it's just those racists over there are the problem, right? And you know, we just need to get those racists out of power, right? Yeah, no, we're not talking about one of the central issues that drives this whole thing. We need to keep our eyes on those things. And I don't believe for a second that most of the core organizers of um, the Black Lives Matter movement don't know these things. They know them. They've been talking about them amongst each other. But I feel like it gets drowned out in the national conversation because there are a lot of other people who have much greater access to the machines of media that have an interest in downplaying the class conversation don't right look over there don't worry about it we just need <laughs> to get the racist cops out and everything will yeah. be fine
0: yeah have you seen that uh social media image of the uh of, of various democratic party leaders taking a knee um in the in the in the uh i'm blanking on the name of the of the garment um, kente cloth <laughs> yes thank you <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I've I've seen
1: it. Yeah. There I think bile entered my mouth the moment I saw that picture <laughs> for yeah. several different reasons. <laughs>
0: yeah. Oh man. It's it's, you know, it's 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 performative. A lot of it yes, is right. really performative. Yeah. Hey, that's me. I, think I that's
1: support your issues. Yeah, no doubt, because, but because but, I'm taking a knee, never mind the material consequences of the exactly. support. Yeah. As long as I take a knee at the appropriate
0: time, that means I'm on the side of black people, right? <laughs> no, it does not. Yeah, and, and that's I think that's something we we got to keep in mind, right? It's like your intentions, whatever they are, they don't really matter if you're not actually doing the homework, if you're not actually fighting for these material gains. Um, so any, uh, any final thoughts before we wrap up for the evening?
1: Solidarity forever. Black Lives Matter.
0: Damn right. Ito, thanks again. Um, we're going to continue talking uh, about um, these uprisings because I feel like folks tend to put Charleston in a box. Charleston's a vacation town. It's where you go to forget your problems. Uh, don't worry about the racism and the and the you know, Confederacy and, and people who were enslaved. Uh, let's just, we're going to go down and we're going to get some shrimp and grits and everything's just going to be fine. Um, it's not really seen as this sort of hotbed of, of activism and of, of leftist politics, but we've been home to many powerful well-respected uh activists throughout our history you know we're the land of septima p clark we're the land of denmark vesey um you know the musc strike was here the 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 uh, cigar factory strike of 54 um yeah we th- shit happens here but it definitely doesn't always get picked up definitely doesn't get mentioned in history books so um so i definitely love I to
1: wonder why <laughs>
0: I'd, I'd love to have you come back and, um, and, and keep, uh, keep the discussion going because I feel like that's what folks need. All right. All right, buddy. Well, take care of yourself. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. All right. Good night, buddy.
2: Stand up, all victims of a prayer tyrants fear your might don't cling so hard to your possessions for you have nothing if you have